Okay, I have got a story to tell you, and it's a weird one. It's about art, paintings specifically, and a strange series of coincidences that led to my guest this week telling me his story just a few weeks ago. A series of coincidences that are still somehow unfolding today. Our story and our painter are based in the Florida Keys, but... Before we go south, before I tell you this incredible and fascinating story, I want to tell you something bizarre. A minor scandal in the art world that has brought national focus to my hometown of Orlando and has some fascinating parallels to the story I came here to tell you today. The minor scandal involves an artist named Jean-Michel Basquiat. If you don't know the name, look him up. He came up as an artist in New York City in the 1980s, known for street art and graffiti art that changed the medium, that challenged the medium. He is a stunning artist full of color and vibrancy and relevant messages in his work. He was using his art to speak out against racism, against poverty, and class issues, and the government. His artistic prowess, however, was cut short when he died of an overdose at the age of 27, a tragically familiar story. Since his death, museums and collections have been memorializing his life and work, showing his art in the context of, essentially, a genius who wasn't fully celebrated in his time. I've only seen Basquiat's work in person once, and it was at a distance. I'll admit that I kind of peeked over a wall into a ticketed gallery at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston this time last year. I really wanted to see Basquiat in person, so naturally I was excited when I was at the Orlando Museum of Art a few weeks ago and saw that a Basquiat exhibit was opening. That's right down the road from me. I was thrilled, but I became even more curious about this exhibit opening when a New York Times headline popped up. The article, written by Brett Sokol, is headlined, quote, In Orlando, 25 mysterious Basquiat's come under the magnifying glass, end quote. The story goes like this, as retold in the Times. These 25 pieces were sold by Basquiat himself to a screenwriter named Thad Mumford back when Basquiat was alive. Quote, the 25 artworks then disappeared for three decades, the museum said, only resurfacing in 2012 after Mumford failed to pay the bill on his Los Angeles storage unit. End quote. Since the opening of the exhibit, skeptics have emerged, saying they believe that the story is quote-unquote highly unlikely. The New York Times cites evidence, all complicated and interesting in their own way, that state that the paintings have some skeptical chains of ownership of those who owned them and when they owned them, and there's some evidence even suggesting that the paintings weren't painted by Basquiat at all because the cardboard they were painted on apparently had a font on them that wasn't used until after Basquiat's death. I know that that's convoluted, but what you need to know is that the New York Times was citing some evidence that suggests that these paintings were not authentic. The Orlando Museum of Art stands firm in their evidence that the paintings are the real McCoy, citing research and authentications from historians and other experts. In an Instagram post, the Orlando Museum of Art says, quote, The art has been fully authenticated by credible sources, including the person who led the Basquiat Estate Authentication Committee, signed off by leading Basquiat historians, forensics professionals, and handwriting experts, end quote. Now, I am no art expert. I don't know anything about this. I don't have an opinion about it. I can't tell you every detail of the entire situation, but 
I'm fascinated by it, and I highly encourage you to read the Times article, follow the things written about by the Orlando Museum of Art, and just pay attention to this story because if you are a history dork like I am, this is the kind of stuff that fascinates you. I'm really eager to hear how this whole story resolves, but the reason I'm telling you it today is because this situation is happening right now. And it has a very distinct parallel to a story that I have been researching for the last couple of weeks and was planning on telling you today. The story that I'm here to tell you is about a collection of paintings by a unique artist lost in a storage unit for three decades only to be found years later. The painter is not Basquiat. The painter is a relatively unknown artist named Harry Sontag. While Basquiat's paintings numbered in 25, the paintings of Harry Sontag that were found in a storage unit was nearly 200 paintings that were found in a storage unit 30 years after they were lost. The story of who this man is, who found them, and how they got into that storage unit is such an incredible tale, and that is what I'm here to tell you today. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week, the hermit artist of the Keys. How he made his art, how his art was lost and found, and the strange ways that human beings connect over wide expanses of history. Let me tell you how I came to this story. Our friend Laura Albritton, who has been on the show twice now, once to discuss the Rum Runners and another time to discuss her Florida Christmas tree, uh, sent me a message early this year. She has many amazing episode ideas for me, ones that you will likely be hearing very soon because I love the things that Laura wants to have on the show. But I took her up on one particular story. It was about a painter called the Key Largo Hermit, one Harry Sontag. His collection of art was nearly lost, but a man named Chuck Faulkner currently owns the collection of 170 paintings. Where could I reach Mr. Faulkner, I asked, and Mr. Faulkner himself quickly got back to me thanks to Laura's help. Chuck calls me, and he wastes no time. Almost as soon as he is on the phone, we dive headfirst into this story. So here is Chuck Faulkner. Uh, my name is Chuck Faulkner, and I'm involved with the collectible business, sort of a part-time thing that I do. Um, I'm semi-retired at this point. I'm 65, and uh, I acquired this uh, collection um, back in 1992 out of a storage unit in Kissimmee, Florida. Actually, it was going to be tossed in the trash, and a friend of mine um, had happened to see the lady cleaning out her storage unit, and went over to see her and she said, you know, he bought a few items from her and she said, here's this bag of artwork her and her husband had found in St. Thomas in 1960 under a bed in the rooming house. And it was Sontag's personal effects. And they brought it back from St. Thomas in 1960 and it laid in storage in Kissimmee for like 32 years. Okay, that was a lot. Let me break it down. Chuck has just told us that he acquired a collection of paintings in 1992 out of a storage unit in Kissimmee, which is a town just south of Orlando. What was in that storage unit was a bunch of items that had been left in a room on the Caribbean island of St. Thomas, which is just east of Puerto Rico. The woman emptying out the storage unit showed the paintings to a friend of Chuck's. She called the collection trash. She wanted to just get rid of it. And Chuck's friend showed him the collection. And he said, oh, there's a bag. She can give me this bag of artwork. It's in my trailer in the, in, the, in the parking lot. An open trailer in July and August. You know how it rained every yeah. day. And 
and I was sort of curious because I'm, I'm just that kind of guy. Well, I want to look at that art. I want to see what it is. So and he wasn't concerned about it. He said, no, I said, you better get out. It's going to rain. He's like, no, it'll be okay. It'll be Finally, I coaxed him in, and we went out and got it, brought it in, and opened this bag and spread it out, and it was Sontag's entire life in this bag as our work. And Miami newspaper clippings from the early 50s, three different clippings that he had kept with his personal stuff when, they, when he opened his gallery in the Keys. Uh, a lot of black and white photos of him, the envelopes, the people that came in to visit him at the Key Largo Gallery had um, went, took photos of him, went home and developed the film and sent him the pictures back. And I have the original envelopes that, that, that I mean, he kept all this stuff. So Chuck opened this to find the items within, the assorted ephemera of one Harry Sontag. Everything from paintings to newspaper clippings to photographs he had taken, to photographs that had been taken of him, that he had chosen to save and, and had put in this collection. Because my buddy that got the collection, after, after we brought it in, and I saved it from the rain, because it rained right after we got it in and we started looking through it, it was in his trailer, and he says, you know, if you wouldn't have had me dig bring this in, it would have got destroyed by the rain. Yeah. Watercolor paintings, newspaper articles, photos. And he said, you know, you're you I mean you're half owner of it. No, I'm gonna give you half interest in it because <laughs> you saved it. Wow. So we owned it together for a few years and we went to the keys. We tried to find people that knew him. We didn't find anybody. When I went with him we didn't find anybody that knew him. Most leads they took to try to figure out who this Harry Sontag man was seemed to continuously turn into a dead end. This guy seemed to be gone from so many people's minds. But Chuck had a collection of over 100 paintings, 170, and he couldn't just do nothing. He had to figure out who this Harry Sontag was, so Chuck got to work. Okay, I was able to track down, he's born in Manhattan, 1900, went to the Pratt Institute in 19. when he was 16 years old. The Pratt Institute, real quick, is based in Brooklyn, New York, a private university with classes in various fields, including engineering and art. So Sontag getting into the school was no small feat. He attended a major arts college at the age of 16. And the articles from the Miami paper said he traveled around the United States. He went out to Washington State. He, uh, he was fascinated with the ghost towns out west. And then he spent three le- three years in Devil's Lake, Wisconsin, uh, painting there, and we think he came to the Keys about 1949. Friend of the show and former guest Brad Bertelli, who runs the Keys History and Discovery Center and has been on the show to discuss the Keys skunk ape, wrote about Harry Sontag a few years ago. He states that Sontag came down to the Keys in 1949. Brad also points out that Harry Sontag, while working in Manhattan, quote, painted in a private gallery. The gallery, as well as all of Harry's work, burned up in a fire, end quote. That is important to note. He had a gallery in Manhattan, and apparently the gallery and the work within burned. There would be another fire in Sontag's life later on, but we'll come back to that in a moment. According to Brad, it was after that fire in Manhattan that Sontag took off traveling through the West until, quote, Harry headed south and hitchhiked his way to the Florida Keys, where he built a shack out of driftwood and tar paper, end quote. Sounds like a pretty nice time to me. (laughs) I don't know about you, but why did he come to the Florida Keys? Of all the places in the United States or the world that he could wind up in, why did he come to the Florida Keys? Well, Chuck has a theory. And I was about the art scene like in the mid-40s in New York and stuff and it was getting real commercialized. Yeah. And I think he, he saw that and he didn't want anything to do with it. 
and he and I don't know how he found the keys, but I know the movie Key Largo came out in 1948. Yeah, we believe he came in '49, so maybe he saw this movie and said, "Hey, you know, maybe I'll go down there." That is a really good movie. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I can yeah, see why I it would be compelling. I'm not. I'm not positive that's what happened, but the time frame sort of leads me to believe that maybe that was an influence for him to go there. Harry Sontag lived on Key Largo in a shack that also functioned as a gallery, a place for him to display the things he was painting. I'd recommend looking at some of his paintings. His style is unique. There are a lot of watercolors in his work. Some of the art is a little pastel. Sometimes it's very saturated. There are distinct lines and shadows and reflections and even beams of light in his paintings. Clearly, Florida provided some artistic inspiration to Harry Sontag because Chuck says that of the nearly 200 paintings he has, most of them seem to be of Florida. There are a few exceptions, of course, including paintings of New York, paintings of locations out west, and some paintings of the Caribbean island of St. Thomas. All of the paintings are of real things, houses, people, boats, nature. But I said this at the beginning of the episode, and it's sort of connected to all of Harry Sontag's life. He was called a hermit. Why? That word is thrown a lot in his stories. They call him the hermit artist of the Keys or the Key Largo hermit. How did that come to be? He was in his late 40s, early 50s when he came to the Keys. He was unmarried. He was living in a shack along the water. He painted and hung up his work. He was certainly a character. It wasn't hard to develop that reputation at the time. Here's what Chuck tells me how he got the word hermit. I went back after I acquired the collection from my friend, I started, kept going to the Keys. And I kept going to places, and I was at this little tiny restaurant in the middle of the road, and I was talking to the waitress, and I said, you know, I'm looking for somebody, I told her what I had in the collection, and we talked a bit, and she, I said, I'm looking for somebody that might have known Sartag, because I, I knew there was, had to be people still alive that knew him. Sure. They were probably young that time. So she said, oh, she said, go see Don at Marion Stan's restaurant. So I go over to Marion Stan's restaurant. Don, he's the cook, the owner, everything, <laughs> drove down to the house. And I approached the house. I had my portfolio with me. And I said, you know, I'm here. I said, I'm doing some research about an artist who painted here in the 50s. And he sort of lit up. He said, oh, the old hermit that used to paint. So that's where the term, that's where I heard the term hermit for the first time. Yeah. And he, I don't know why he classed him as a hermit. Well, because he just—he was just hanging out, painting. He was a real loner kind of guy. And he was just a, a loner. And like so many figures in local legend, he got a title, a story. It just so happened that he was their hermit painter, but he wasn't truly a hermit. He had friends. He had guests, visitors, people who wanted to see his work. Years after Chuck Faulkner got the art collection from the storage unit, he ran into somebody that knew Chuck back in the day after they saw Chuck's collection. It was a couple that had opened the Cypress Cove Nudist Resort in Kissimmee. Yes, you heard that right. I told you this was a good story. <laughs> anyway, Chuck met this couple, and they had photos of Sontag from the 50s and a painting that Sontag gave them back then. What makes these photographs important is that they showed Harry's private life. They showed his home. Proof sheets. I mean, her husband captured him in his little garden with his tomato plants, you know, pulling greens and stuff, and his out little outdoor makeshift kitchen he had with an old metal grate and his little pans and stuff. And so yeah, he got the reputation of hermit, but it was only a title. Harry let people into his world, let them capture his details, let them remember him in their own way. And not to mention that, but he also 
opened up his own gallery, not just the gallery in his home, an actual building with his paintings hung within. Brad says, quote, Sontag approached the owner of an abandoned key lime packing house. He wanted to use the space as a gallery. The owner gave him the structure free of charge, end quote. This was the early 50s, with loads of paintings of Florida now under his belt, and Harry wanted to display his work and sell his work. People would come to visit, but, quote, hours were arbitrary and depended on Harry's mood, end quote. Love that. Wish I could live that life. Chuck has photographs from this time, pictures of Harry in his own gallery that apparently guests would take and then give or send to him. In that collection that Chuck found in the storage unit, there were these pictures. Clearly, they meant something to Harry. Brad Bertelli's article says that the prices of paintings were, quote-unquote, non-negotiable. They were often sold between $55 or $65. According to Brad, if a lower price was offered by a visitor, Harry would not even consider it. He set the price, and that did not change. He didn't barter. It's unclear if some of his paintings were sold, but we can assume some may have been. Some may still be out there in the world. I don't know. I would love to know that. That's one of the blank spaces in this story. But Harry Sontag was plagued by fire. It's just the hand that fate dealt him. And, quote, for the second time in his career, the Harry Sontag collection was lost in a fire, end quote. But Chuck has an amendment to that story. And then there was a fire in 1955, which I found out about eight years after I got the collection from the Upper Key historian. Him and his wife would go to Homestead and they would dig through the Homestead papers looking for stuff about the keys. He stumbles on an article from 1955. It says, famous gallery in the Keys destroyed by fire. Famous gallery. <laughs> and so it said, kept in the building was Sontag's uh, life's work. Uh, the entire contest was destroyed. Well, uh, these little black and white pictures, like the, with the tourist him and stuff, they showed images on paintings hanging in the walls and stuff, and I have them all. Oh, my God. So they didn't burn up. Oh my God. <laughs> that is... The story is crazy. I mean, when you look at all the photos, I got all of them, but about two that are hanging. Wow. Why did they think that they were destroyed? Well, I think, well, I, Sontag probably told him that. In, in the original Miami newspaper article, he mentioned that up in New York, he lost his uh, studio in New York to a fire. I'm not actually sure if that was a fire or he was playing off on this to make it a mystery or who knows. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that so fascinating and wild? Did Harry lie? Did, did Harry Sontag say that the paintings were lost even though they weren't? If Chuck has these paintings now that were apparently hung in the gallery that apparently had burned, how were they saved? Did, did Harry save them? What did he, why did he lie? How did they survive? How did they get here? Did Harry like the mystery? Did he like the questions that were following him? Did he just like that there was this air of mystique? Or was he not making enough money on his paintings and he wanted to just start over and scrap the entire thing? Why did he say the paintings were gone? I don't know. I have no idea. But I'm fascinated by the questions that he left in his wake because it doesn't stop there. There was the first fire in Manhattan which led him to leaving New York and then there was the second fire in the Keys that led to him leaving Florida and then he moved on. Where he went, well, that's the next chapter. To sort of complete the circle, when does he die, and how do the... You said that the paintings were found on St. Thomas? Right. The, the, after the fire in 55, um, and they claimed it was all burnt up, five years later, we believe, well, he went to St. Thomas because we know some of the paintings.
painting, you know, a handful of paintings are painted of St. Thomas. Right. So we know he went there. He probably got on a boat after the fire, took his stuff, went down to St. Thomas after he told everybody it was burned up. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, then he was at a rooming house, apparently, and this woman from Kissimmee and her husband were at the rooming house, and they find his stuff under a bed. And I had found something. I, I didn't document it. I should have been documenting a little more when I was doing it. I documented a lot, but I missed a few things. I was looking, and there was a Sontag that was uh, died other, uh, died over in St. Pete. Huh. And I don't know if it was his brother or his father, and I think maybe he got some bad news. It says, I got to go back, and for whatever reason, he couldn't take the bag, or maybe he wanted it left there. You know? Yeah. That's, I'm thinking, I don't know. You know, it, he, maybe he left it there for that reason. He left everything intact, knowing that somebody was going to find it, and, you know, was hoping that it was going to travel around and get to where it is today. We're talking Either about 200. We're talking about 200 paintings, or is this a smaller collection of the paintings? No, this is 170. Okay, he left 170 paintings in a room in St. Thomas. No frames, just flat paper. Wow. And some of them were matted on old political signs that he got <laughs> found on the side of the road. We took those all off, and I wish I wouldn't have now, but. They had brown acid tape on them, and we wanted to get those off. But sure. You could tell they were cut out of old political signs. He uh, made us mad him from. He just left them there and then went back to Florida, possibly. No, he went to St. Pete. He died in St. Pete in 91. He was 90. When did you find the paintings? 92. Oh. <laughs> A year after he passed away, they come out of the storage unit. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. So he leaves St. Thomas in a rush. There's a record of someone dying with the last name Sontag in St. Petersburg, Florida, possibly a relative. It was around then that Harry leaves St. Thomas. He may have been in a rush. It was some bad news that he had to attend to. But why did he leave the paintings? Why did he leave them in this room under a bed? I don't know, but, but he did. He left them in the Caribbean and eventually dies in St. Pete, Florida, the exact town that he fled to after St. Thomas. The paintings were found in St. Thomas in 1960, five years after the fire. But Harry Sontag died 30 years later. Did he stay in St. Pete the whole time? What did he do in the, all those years? He disappeared. He went off the map after St. Thomas. What happened? What did he do? Then I, doing the research, I got his death certificate. I went over to St. Pete to the address where he, where he was, his last address. And I went over there, and it was a trailer park. And I go up to the manager, and I says, you know, I'm doing some research about an artist that used to live here. And it was only a year after he died. I went there in, like, 92 or 3. I went a year or so after. And uh, I went over there, and the manager says, well, the owner who doesn't live here now would have been here at that time. So I he gave me the guy's number, and I called him. And he's like, yeah, I don't want to talk about that trailer park. It almost gave me two heart attacks. He was, and I don't know if it was a financial burden. Sounds like maybe it was. I don't know. But anyway, he wouldn't talk to me. He wouldn't. He didn't. So I waited. And the manager said, well, those three women standing down in the street. I said, he said, they've been here a long time. They would remember him. So I walked down the street with my portfolio and talked to these women. And I said, you know, I'm doing some research on the Terry Sontag. You lived here. And I had photographs when he was 50 years old. 
and they knew him when he was 90. Right. So I'm like, and they're looking at him to say, yeah, that looks like him. That's him. And uh, and I asked them, I said, they said, oh, yeah, he lived in, and it was lived in like a 20-foot travel trailer, had a little screen porch on it. And they said he would get on the city buses and he'd come back with like pieces of wood and he, he stacked it on. The, now, was he making frames? Was he just whacked out? Or I don't know what he might have. He was collecting wood for whatever reason. So but, he yeah. leaves the paintings. 30 years earlier and right. do you have any evidence to suggest he ever went back for them or was looking for them no no Chuck suspects that Harry had odd jobs here and there but it seems as though he lived off social security in the trailer park until he died at the age of 90 in 1991 the year after he died in 1992, Chuck Faulkner randomly discovers this collection of paintings, paintings that had been lost for 30 years from an obscure artist who maybe wanted to just leave the past in the past. Chuck suspects that Sontag may have left the art in St. Thomas on purpose, like he was trying to leave that part of himself there, ready to just move on. He was going to turn 60 that year, so maybe he was just tired of the youthful exploits of an artist. I don't know. I have no idea, but through a totally random exchange of hands, they survived to be in Chuck's possession all these years later. Chuck admits he'd like to see the paintings put together, displayed, or purchased in their full glory. Currently, they aren't on display. Chuck says he would like to see them turned into a book, a, a collection of the paintings with Harry's story, and maybe even Chuck's own place in that narrative. And I think a book needs to be done, a nice coffee table book with the entire yeah. story about me and the collection and I don't want any I'm not I don't want to be famous but it's such a big part of the thing this you know, story it's just it's amazing I mean Chuck you're the you're the you're the continuation of the story right I mean the the fact that it disappears the fact that it's you know hidden in a storage unit for 30 years and then you are happy to be part of the you know saving of it and now you've got it now that that's the that's the chain of, of ownership, right? I mean, that's the, the fact that like only a few people in existence have owned these paintings and one of them, one of the like three was this man, the creator, the man who created it. I mean, you're a part of the story. Harry Sontag may have wanted to leave the past behind, but Chuck's curiosity couldn't resist. I mean, could yours? If you found these paintings, would you be able to just let them lie? No, this is a story that needs to be told. Chuck used Harry's art, his own decision of what to collect, as the starting off points to start unraveling this weave. And I don't think we've seen the last of the story. Brad Bertelli in his article suggests that maybe those Manhattan paintings, the ones that were apparently lost in that first fire, could still be out there. Who knows? We don't know the entire extent of everything that happened, but I think what draws me to this story, what made me want to tell it to you, are those gaps, those coincidences. History can be about the most prominent people, leaders, authors, explorers, but it can also be about these lesser known figures, a hermit painter who lived on an island in Florida, who vanished off the map out of the clear blue sky, who lied about his own legacy and hid his artifacts for 30 years. Those are the puzzles that attract me the most, the ones that we still have to solve. Unwritten histories with chapters still left blank to be written. I feel pretty lucky. 
to be able to tell you those stories. And maybe one of you listening knows something about Harry Sontag. Have you heard his name? Have you seen his work? Do you know something about him that you would like to share? Let me know. Let Chuck know. Because I don't think this story is done. I think that there is something still left to be explored. Something in those gaps in his life. Harry Sontag is a story that is still being written 30 years after his death. And I believe that we are just beginning to unfurl his story. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. It's a, it's a real fun one. A weird one. I love getting to tell you about some of the most important people in Florida history, but I also love getting to tell you about some of the obscure, bizarre little tales that pop up in, in all the interactions that I get to have for this show. So if you want to hear more stories like this, I do recommend you listening to the episodes from the people who helped bring this story to life. Laura Albritton, who chatted with me about the Rum Runners, and Brad Bertelli, who wrote about the Skunk Ape of the Keys. So go check out those episodes and learn more about the keys. There is so much to discover, so much that I have yet to explore and cannot wait to uncover. This is just the beginning of that. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. If you love the show, tell me what you love about it. Give it five stars. It means the world to me, and it genuinely helps the show become more visible to those who have not discovered it yet. You can also find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. You can get in touch with me there. I've been posting a lot of reels that explore a little bit more of the stories on the Instagram, so go follow the show. Keep in touch. I would love to hear from you, and if you have an idea for an episode, reach out to me at WFMPod at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. You can also pick up Wait 5 Minutes merchandise at Cast and Clay on Etsy. We have a Wait 5 Minutes sticker, a Drink More Water sticker, and a sticker featuring the show subtitle About Florida by a Floridian. So go to Cast and Clay on Etsy. We are hoping to work on some new stickers very soon, possibly for the 10th season this upcoming summer. But until then, head to Cast and Clay, get your stickers now. I'd like to give a huge thank you to Laura Albritton for giving me this story, for Brad Bertelli for writing about this a couple years ago, and most importantly, to Chuck Faulkner, who took the time to chat with me about his collection, about his story. I had such a wonderful time talking to him, so go read more of Chuck's work about Harry Sontag. It is such a fascinating tale. Next week, I'm very excited about this one. I wrote about the Florida Terea, a unique kind of tree, last year for the show, and I spoke with Lily Anderson Messick, a botanist, for the show back then, and when we chatted, she told me that if I'd like to come visit her in the field, see her survey work as she does it out in North Florida, I should reach out and schedule a trip, and that is exactly what I did. It was an amazing time, a fascinating story that I cannot wait for you to hear, so next week, the search for the Florida Terea with Lily Anderson Messick. You're going to love it. I can't wait for you to hear it. Until then, be good to yourself, be good to others, and please drink more water. See you next Monday. Have a good one. <laughs>